Hello and welcome to Switzer TV Investing. This is a special one we're putting together for Easter Monday. Uh, we did it in advance, of course, and uh, we caught up with a whole lot of experts where we asked five, we think, important questions that might be really relevant to you, working out whether you want to invest now or hold on and wait for the future. So we've got Julia Lee from Berman Invest, Michael McCarthy from CMC Markets, Anthony Doyle from Fidelity, Roger Montgomery from Mo Montgomery Investment Management, Jeff Wilson from Wilson Asset Management, Catherine Ball, who's a, a renowned futurist and she thinks a lot of big changes are happening and we have a special longer interview with Michael Knox from Morgans who looks at what kind of uh, economy will develop after the coronavirus and he's gone kind of predicting some really big things for 2021 and beyond. That's your show. Without any further ado, let's cross to our experts. Okay, short questions, short answers. Have you adjusted your investment stance since the crisis? Absolutely. I mean, people were expecting to see a V-shaped recovery and now it's more looking like a U, if not an L-shaped recovery. So it does look like it's going to be a protracted recovery here for the global economy. What will signal that the crisis is over for the markets? I think it's a combination of falling volatility in terms of the market and some stability. And in particular, the US is the epicenter of the COVID-19 fight. So once we do start to see a stabilization there and we start to see things potentially being opened up, I think that would be a huge positive for the markets. What are you investing in right now? Uh, Food-based stocks, I guess if you have a look at dividend stability, a lot of companies are looking unstable in terms of their dividend payments over the next 12 to 24 months. But some of the areas are those food areas which have been benefiting. So Woolworths, West Farmers, uh, Coles, as well as uh, things like Metcash. Um, and the food area is looking quite interesting as well. We're recovering from a drought and there's still that strong demand for food coming through. So things like Costa Group as well as Elders and Bigger Cheese. So what industry sectors or stocks do you think will fare well post-COVID-19? Well, I think, first of all, we will, we will see the larger end of the market. And I prefer the commodities-based space, given that China is one of the first to recover. So expecting to see big spends in terms of stimulus, as well as infrastructure spends. So that should benefit the iron ore miners, as well as BHP, Billiton. One of the areas I'd probably be a bit slower to invest in and avoid are the banks, because they have deferred some of their risk for six months. But after that six months, um, they're going to have to face up to some of the loans on their books. Um, so look, I'd probably be avoiding the banks for the time being. And what are you looking forward to do post COVID-19? <gasps> so much. <laughs> I think catching up with friends over a meal would be number one. Great stuff. Julia, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Pete. Michael, thanks for joining us. Hi, Peter. Let's do these short Q&As. Kicking off the first one, have you adjusted your investment stance since the crisis? Not at all, Peter. I had a protected portfolio uh, and I've left that protection in place. I'm letting it play out and those puts are really delivering for my portfolio. Okay. What will, you, what will signal that the crisis is over for the markets? Well, every bear market's different, Peter, so we can't rely, but certainly a decline in infection rates would be a very important signal. Gentler trading, smaller trading ranges would be good news uh, and an upward trajectory clearly would be also good news. 
Yes, we'd like to see that. What, what are you investing in right now? Cash. What industry sector stocks do you think will fare well post-COVID-19? Particularly focused on the energy sector, the healthcare sector, and the financials. And what are you looking forward to doing most after COVID-19? Getting back in the water, Peter. It's killing me when they close the beaches. Yeah, without a doubt. And maybe you might get like going to a manly game as well. Michael McCarthy, <laughs> thanks for joining us. Thanks, Peter. So, Anthony, have you adjusted your investment stance since the crisis? Yeah, Peter, so we're looking to uh, not waste a good crisis and we think that there's a lot of compelling opportunities that have opened up and we've actually started allocating more uh, and investing more in equities that we really like and companies that we really like. Okay, what will signal that the crisis is over for the markets? I think the gradual opening up of economies and the withdrawal of these suppression uh, measures that governments have put in place. What are you investing in right now? So we really like technology, online adoption, gamification, um, online groceries. So we think that the current crisis will accelerate some of those long-term adoption themes. What industry sectors, stocks do you think will fare well post-COVID-19? I think you want to be long oil importing economies and countries at this point in time. Uh, the oil exporters are obviously suffering under the collapse of the oil price. And finally, what are you looking forward to doing post-COVID-19? I'm really looking forward to catching up for a, a beer with mates, taking my wife to a restaurant and getting the kids uh, out to see their grandparents again. Yeah, good point. Thanks for joining us, Anthony. See you later. I'm talking to Roger Montgomery of Montgomery Investment Management. Hi, Roger. G'day. Good to be with you again, Peter. Okay, here's some quick questions. Have you adjusted your investment stance since the crisis? No. We already had uh, a large amount of cash going into it. Uh, we've maintained that cash level at the moment, uh, so we haven't. All right. What will signal that the crisis is over for the markets? Well, it depends how you define the crisis. If the crisis is just coronavirus and COVID-19, uh, it won't be a flattening of the curve. It'll be a vaccine. That means that it's over, but you want to be invested before that. But there's another crisis that potentially follows this one, and it's economic. Uh, and uh, for that to be over, it's, it's, you know, it's going to take some time. There's no single defining signal. Quite frankly, I want to be fully invested by the time uh, the vaccine is developed uh, and we're, we're getting towards normal activity. Uh, but there may be reasons to have more cash again after that. What are, your, uh, what are you investing in right now? Uh, well, we're an Aussie equity manager. So what we've done prior to the sell-off, uh, we actually reduced the beta of the portfolio. So we ended up investing in more stable infrastructure type businesses. So we've recently bought Sydney airports, but prior to that, Transurban. Uh, we bought Telstra, as you know, uh, and also, um, we also own New Zealand's NBN network. What industry sector stocks you think will fare well post-COVID-19? Ah, uh, well, that's actually an easy question to answer. You want to be in businesses that are leveraged to the recovery. So you want to you want higher beta stocks, businesses that are going to see that have a lot of spare capacity, 
but are going to see big increases in volumes. So companies like Sydney Airports, for example, uh, REA Group, you know, they're going to see rapid turnarounds in their activity. And and if you really want to be a little bit riskier, travel stocks, companies like Webjet and Flight Centre. What are you looking forward to doing post-COVID-19? Uh, like everybody else, travelling. Uh, it'll be good. You know, I, look, I can I can share a little insight with you. We know that Carnival Cruises sent out an invitation to their passengers whose uh, trips were cancelled. Uh, they gave them the option of a full cash refund or a 200% credit uh, for a future trip. Almost 99% of people took the 200% uh, credit. So recovery in travel, I think I'm not the only one that is going to want to do that. Good observation, mate. Thanks for joining us. Always a pleasure, Peter. Jeff, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Pete. Good to be here. Let's go for the rapid fire questions first. Have you adjusted your investment stance since the coronavirus crisis? Well, we've definitely adjusted the investment portfolio, and, and that's because you know, everything's changed from an economic perspective. What, what we try to do is buy, try to buy undervalued growth companies and buy them when we can see a catalyst that's going to change the valuation. So obviously over the last two or three months, the outlook for growth has changed significantly. So uh, as soon as it became clear that it was spreading uh, internationally, uh, as in it wasn't, uh, the coronavirus wasn't just controlled in, in China, uh, then you know, we knew there was going to be some economic impact. Um, obviously, and that continued to evolve very quickly, um, and, and so over that period of time, we've definitely adjusted the portfolio significantly. So what will signal that the crisis is over for the markets? Yeah, that, that, is, that is a, you know, obviously the million dollar question. Um, the, I actually think currently the market's assuming that we'll be back to work in sort of you know, May slash June. Mm. Uh, and, and I think a lot of people are expecting it to be you know, similar to a... You know, whether it's a U-shaped recovery or a V-shaped recovery, uh, you know, that everything will go back to normal quite quickly. Um, all the research I've done in terms of you know, talking to various medical um, you know, people is it's going to take a lot longer. Um, we'll be lucky to get a vaccine within 12 months. Uh, and, and who knows, it might end up like the Spanish flu of um, 1918, where it, it, it disappeared as quickly as it arrived. Um, but that, that ended up being um, because of herd immunity. Uh, and th then like a third of the population um, you know, actually got infected with it. Mm. So to me, you know, all bear markets need a bit of time. Um, I actually think, you know, even though we're having a bit of a, um, a rally at the moment, I think um, as the expectations change in terms of you know, the economic impact is going to be uh, go for a bit longer than I think the market's expecting, uh, and we see the second and third um, yeah, in effects of what's currently happening in terms of companies going under, et cetera, um, you know, then, then that'll, be, you know, that'll be a tougher period for the market. Um, I would say if I had to pick you know, towards you know, in, in the next probably three or four months, you know, we'll, be, we'll be getting closer to, the, to a bottom. Um, and the, the crazy thing is, um, you know, all this sort of, um, you know, all these you know, human effects, you know, that, that people losing their lives, you know, which is so uh, uh, painful, um, where from an economic perspective, 
you know, it, in theory, you know, from with our perspective, it, it's, you know, we're playing with numbers. Um, to me, that's that's the painful part. Um, but you know, towards the end of this year, everything will be a lot clearer. I think. What are you investing in right now? Well, you, you know, things. Everyone's going to change their behaviour because of this, and we're already seeing it. I, I, you know, I for one was never a big um, order online person, uh, and now I've I've you know, I've had to learn how to do that. Um, and so I think you know, companies that give you you know, the online exposure, you know, domestically, things like you know, Temple and Webster, the online furniture store, you know, Kogan, um, you know, globally, obviously, you know, the likes of the Microsofts, um, you know, you, you're going to get a whole lot of different behaviours. Uh, and, and it's really looking for companies you know, that will, um, will be able to weather a recession, you know, say, um, you know, low-cost businesses, companies that don't have a lot of debt, um, now, what we what we saw in the GFC was companies that had a lot of short-term debt. You know, there was you know, there's question marks whether they survive. And what we're seeing at the moment, because we're holding a reasonable amount of cash, you're seeing a lot of recapitalizations. And I suppose being a, a institution, you know, then we are we do get a, a significant competitive advantage. Um, so we're being able to participate in those. And, and during the GFC, it was about 12% of the market by capitalization was raised in fresh equity. Uh, and that's starting to happen now. And we think that'll continue you know, over the next you know, two to three months. Okay, I think you might have answered this question, but I'll just throw it to you again. So what industry sector stocks do you think will fare well post-COVID? So this is in a nutshell, what are you looking for? Well, well what also uh, other areas that, that really aren't plugged into the economy. Uh, another, another sector we've been buying share, shares of uh, companies in is agriculture. Yeah, we've had really good um, Rains, you know, for the last three years, we've been buying Elders, um, you know, Costa, you know, companies that um, you know, will, will really can grow um, you know, and not being impacted by the current you know, shutdown. And so what are you looking forward to doing post-COVID? Hey, hey seeing you, Pete, you know, potentially shaking your hand. I'm not, I'm not sure if we'll ever get to shaking hands again, but really... Yeah, really a bit of yeah, human interaction going back into the office and instead of you know, we we meet daily um, online you know, mm. from a work perspective uh, but it's actually about seeing human beings again and that's the big thing yeah great stuff thanks mate thanks Pete. so I'm talking to Dr Catherine Ball who's a scientific futurist among many things a tech influencer and I love this quote from Catherine future business will be more about the why and less about the dollar. Thanks for joining us, Catherine. Thanks for having me, Peter. How are you? Very, very good indeed. So during the you know, COVID crisis, people have had to adapt their working life, and that's obvious, and social life as well, to operate a more virtual, in a more virtual realm. So how will this affect the future of business, do you think? Well, as with any country going through a war, which I believe we could probably compare this to going through a war, there are things that you have to do during the war that don't necessarily survive during peacetime. So though we have people at the moment beaming in on robots and doing lots of Zoom calls, I don't think that what we're doing right now will stay when the COVID restrictions lift. I think it may evolve into something that's more of a hybridized form which academically we've already sort of predicted. So for example, there's been many studies around the world that have shown the most appropriate working week is actually a three-day working week that you actually can achieve in three days 
what people achieve in five. So I'm wondering how technology is actually going to enable people to have maybe a more condensed work week. So same job, same salary, but fewer days in the office. That's going to be quite interesting. Yeah, I guess in many ways there could be a, um, a compatible goal from the point of view of the business owner saying, well, if that's the case, I can rent smaller places, I can have less workstations and I can save on costs. But it's going to be really important that the employees can prove that the productivity doesn't suffer. In fact, you'd want it to be enhanced. Exactly. And in fact, this is the difference between a leader and a manager. A leader lights fires within people, a manager lights fires under people. So this all comes down to trust. How much do you trust that your colleagues, your peers and the people that work for you are actually going to be able to do the job that you ask them to do? And this is where I think KPIs are going to be much more important rather than hours on a timesheet. Mm. So how does the future of business differ from the, 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 so the future of business differ from the future of work? Well, that's a statement that I've made a few times, and I think I'd like to break it down like this. Business is about keeping our economies going, about us having a career, having a sense of purpose with our work. How we work and what work is to us is going to change in that I think people are now going to be maybe more reflective about how they spend their time and what they would like to spend their time on. I really see that in Australia, we are going to have some kind of national service by which we actually all volunteer to do something to actually build up a post-pandemic preparation capability for when the next one of these viruses swings around. And one of these viruses will likely swing around again in my lifetime, if not sooner. So we need to actually look at how we prioritise our time and how we value our time when it comes to spending time at work, in inverted commas, and working, which is something else entirely. Mm. Catherine, uh, I've got a couple of other sort of related questions, but as I was listening to you, I also have been pondering um, the, the fact that a lot of older people said a lot of younger people need to see what a recession looks like to even appreciate what is being done for them in the workplace. There's, there's often been, I think, uh, in probably over the last 10 years, a them versus us mentality. Do you think that there's going to be, you know, when employers bend over backwards to get their staff back, to try and use the government policies to try and get the money so they can pay rent and, and live their life. Do you think there's going to be a, a, a greater sense of camaraderie in the workplace than existed before this threat? I think that this is a tipping point for us and our culture and how we want to see ourselves as a generation. I'm, I'm 40 years old. And I have a lot of friends that are really appreciative of the generations ahead of us that have gone through tougher times. Um, and we've been looking at them and, and seeing how they get through these things. I mean, my mum was born in 1952. And as a teenager, she would go to bed scared that a nuclear war was about to start. My grandmother in World War II would hide under the tables in the kitchen during the bombings in London and hope that she would wake up alive the next morning. This is our challenge now, our generation's challenge. I think that universal basic income has always been an interesting idea and we're kind of seeing something along the lines of that at the moment. One of the things that I'm quite happy to see is that this has actually increased, I think, our level of connectivity and kindness in our communities. And I've had friends telling me that they've seen neighbours behind their hedges or behind their windows, albeit, but they've seen their neighbours for the first time and they've lived in that street for five years and they've never seen their neighbours before. So ironically, by being separated, we're actually becoming closer together. 
I'd like to think that the young workforce, the people that are coming on board now in their late teens and early 20s, will recognise the complexities of you know, how the economy actually works. And it's not necessarily what your government can do for you, but what you can do for your country through these times. I'm really interested from an entrepreneurial and startup space, what kind of ideas are going to come from this and how we capture those. So as an economy, when we are one of the first major economies to come back online this year, how we can take advantage of that as a country and actually become a global player and say what we want around the table rather than following the lead of other traditionally larger economies. Mm. So, so what, will, what will the fifth industrial revolution look like? You know, I guess people have heard this before. Describe what you're talking about. So the fourth industrial revolution is the one that everyone still seems to talk about now. And that is all about the business models around things like big data, the thing that you and I are doing right now, speaking across the, the Internet um, and looking at how sensor technologies can actually combine to provide us a lot of data and information. Well, that's all well and good. Let's look at how the technology works. And that's fine. That's the fourth industrial revolution. But the next one that's coming that I think we're actually starting to see pieces of now what we were expecting in the next 10 to 15 years is going to happen in the next two, is that technology is used for purpose. Why do we want technology? How does that help us as an individual and also as a community and as a country be healthier, wealthier, wiser about how we live our lives? And that's not just some fluff and circumstance. In all seriousness, how do we want the world to look? This pandemic is a one-way door. We can decide right now what we want to leave behind and what we want to take with us. And as, an, as a country, Australia has some amazing areas where it, it really punches above its weight. I mean, immunology and epidemiology is certainly one of those, and we're seeing that with the Doherty Institute. Our 3D manufacturing capability is coming online in a huge way. The wonderful Mathilde Desalle at the Hurston Biofabrication Institute here in Brisbane, her team have managed to 3D print um, I think it was 3,000 face shields for healthcare workers in the space of five days. We've got new plastic mold injection technologies coming through some of our industries, which are now able to make N95 masks off the same machines. So we'll have millions of those available in a stockpile. So those are the kinds of business models that you'll find for the fifth industrial revolution are starting to appear on our horizon in real life now. Healthcare is never going to be the same. Telehealth is here to stay. And we wanted telehealth for a very long time. And of course, I speak here from Queensland, where we have more of a remote and regional population than we do in Brisbane or Gold Coast. And so what can telehealth mean for the cancer survival rates in our regional towns and cities? It's significant. Digital health and telehealth will not go away. That is one of the things that's here to stay. Um, I'm very proud to support my local farmers and vegetable suppliers by having a delivery every week now of a beautiful fruit and veg box from a company called Suncoast Fresh that used to provide all of the posh restaurants in town, all of their top grade veggies. Well, I get those now. And you know what? The quality of that uh, is actually better than anything I've seen in a supermarket. So I'm sticking with those box veggie deliveries. Um, so deliveries are here to stay. And how we actually access our food and how we access um, our shopping is, I think, going to change completely. So clearly you're, you're underlining how technology is going to serve this fifth industrial revolution and the changing nature of people who will be participating in it. But finally, will there be ethical dilemmas that we should be aware of? Privacy, I think, is the capital P in all of this. Um, 
we have very complex and even lacking really in terms of privacy legislation. Other countries have much better privacy legislation. A good example of that is the drone deliveries that are happening here now. Google Wing chose Queensland, Australia to be the first place in the world for their commercial deliveries. And Google Wing have never been busier. They are oversubscribed and unable to keep up with demand. But you've got to ask yourself about the equitable access of airspace. Do we only want one or two companies to have access to the airspace? And the way our federal government departments are set up means that there is supposed to be equal access to airspace for anybody who wants to use it. So how do we get our legislation to speed up how it evolves around current technologies, but also current needs? With regard to the privacy around things like drone technologies, some of the things we've seen in other countries like China, using facial recognition software, GPRS codes, healthcare scanning, data on your iPhones, mass surveillance effectively by proxy, do we want to have mass surveillance by proxy? When we start to open up this country and take down the state borders, it might be Western Australia or South Australia that gets rid of lockdown first. Um, then are we going to look at cities and say, here in Brisbane, let's lock down Tenerife, but Kangaroo Point gets opened. How are people going to feel when they're in a locked down suburb of a city um, where other people are not locked down? Those things, I believe, really come down to trust. And they really come down to the way data is being explained. At the moment, my frustrations around some of the data reporting we have for COVID is when they tell us the confirmed cases, they don't say whether or not they're community cases or people in travel related quarantine. And I think there's a big difference between those two cohorts. So I'd like to see a little bit more open data explanation from the federal government. I think that will increase the trust in the numbers and the trust in the modelling. And that will be as we go through the next phase, which is how to remove the restrictions that we've got in place. Hmm. It sounds like we need two things that often are scarce, foresight and politicians with guts. Catherine Ball, thanks for joining us on the program. Thanks so much for having me. Anytime. Clearly, the coronavirus has caused serious economic implications. And whenever I see serious economic implications, I like to talk to Michael Knox, Chief Economist at Morgan's. Michael, how are you going? Amazing in the circumstances, Peter. Yeah, good answer, good answer. All right, so, so what are the circumstances? You, you continually rub your, or not literally, but you do rub your economic crystal ball trying to work out what's going to happen. So tell us what you think is going to happen. Well, um, I'll tell you a story first, and I'll tell you a story about the Federal Reserve. Okay. The Federal Reserve has some really good uh, research that it's been publishing on uh, epidemics in general, and those uh, and they've reviewed pieces going all the way back to 1927, mm. and um, as recently as uh, last month. And um, what they show uh, is a series of studies that were done uh, about what happened in various parts of the US economy in the uh, in 19, 1918 in the in the previous epidemic of this size which was the uh, Spanish flu and what they showed was the effect of um, NPIs uh, Peter that's the new acronym for this an NPI is non pharmaceutical interventions and what we're doing is non pharmaceutical interventions and uh, what they show is that in different programs in different U.S. cities, the different programs 
uh, and the level of non-pharmaceutical intervention, the degree to which uh, there was social distancing, uh, the degree to which uh, businesses and factories were shut down, um, that the more that uh, those uh, uh, non-pharmaceutical uh, interventions were, the deeper they were and the longer they lasted in months, the faster the recovery from the slowdown. And more interestingly, the cities that had the most the longest and most severe pharmaceutical interventions not only recovered most rapidly, but they had the highest relative growth rate in terms of industrial production in, in following years. So that tends to suggest that the strategies that the US is doing and Australia is doing are, are going to allow a pretty rapid recovery from this slowdown. So what we think is that yes, um, the output on the economy is terrible in the short term, and we think that year-on-year -year growth rate for this financial year we're in now will be minus 2.5%. And that's the worst since, well, as long as we've got records. Um, but as we move forward, particularly after the US, we think the US will come back into production in um, August uh, when their wave, their um, infection wave is passed, and we think that will allow a recovery in the capital market, and we think that will then lead to us coming back into production, which will be the end of September, October. So that by the time we get to, it'll all be over by Christmas, Peter. <laughs> uh, by the time we get to the end of this year, there will be significant financial recovery and uh, <clears throat> recovery in the real economy, which will be in progress. And so you're, you're looking at 2021 to be a rip-roaring year? Yeah, I, I think uh, there should be a strong recovery generally. And as I've said, and I think I was quoted in the AFR uh, as saying today, that uh, the historical precedent for what we're going through now is the Spanish flu at the end of the Great War. And that Spanish flu at the end of the Great War was followed not by a Great Recession, but by the boom of the Roaring Twenties, which is a significant boom uh, in the US economy and in the French economy. It wasn't a sufficient great boom in the British Empire because they had this um, Chancellor Exchequer with the unlikely name of Winston Spencer Churchill, and he revalued Sterling at the end of, uh, of the Great War. Uh, but uh, uh, then Australia devalued in the Great, uh, in the great Depression, and we had a faster recovery then because we did that. Mm. But in current circumstances, we should have the same kind of recovery after this that happened in the US uh, in the 1920s. And as we know, uh, that was uh, an extended boom which went through the entire decade. Mm. Michael, the, the big variation I would have thought between <clears throat> and now is that the the calibre of modern medicine is miles better. Like, they didn't even have penicillin back in 1918. If you've ever seen that great American TV program called The Nick, which you should, should see if you haven't seen it, it actually shows how bad hospitals were 
in the early 1900s, you have more chance of dying in an operation than being saved by an operation in those days. Do you think the fact that we are better in terms of modern medicine, that could actually even shorten our ability to get back to work? Yes, but that's not what the Fed uh, literature is telling us about. It's telling us about what we are doing now mm. and why what we are doing now will be successful and generate a rapid recovery. Mm. I think uh, it's absolutely the case. Uh, for example, the, uh, um, the use of uh, malaria drugs, and that was actually suggested uh, by a couple of researchers in Royal Brisbane Hospital here. Um, a couple of weeks ago. And, of course, that uh, um, hydroxychloroquine, is that the name, um, is being tried in New York hospitals uh, as we speak. Uh, but uh, it's very interesting that uh, only yesterday there was uh, a research group in Melbourne that noted that uh, a cure for another uh, Queensland tropical disease, uh, which exists in far north Queensland, called river blindness, uh, which is a parasitic another parasitic disease like malaria, that they found that the uh, drug, the commonly used drug, which had been um, long approved by the World Health Organization for use in that illness, had a dramatic effect upon the uh, samples of, uh, of uh, the virus causing COVID-19 that they were working on. Mm. So I think there's... Uh, significant uh, progress being made even before we get to the point of generating a, a vaccine, which might be in the middle of next year. I think we're finding that things that uh, have, have been proven before uh, for parasites like the one that causes river blindness or the one that causes malaria seem to be applicable in, in this particular epidemic. Okay, now, Michael, when the stock market fell in Australia by about 36%, we didn't know what the central bank was going to do. We didn't know what the reserve, uh, what the government was going to do. And both you and I would have to be surprised to see that there's an overall stimulus that could be akin to about 163 or 4% of GDP. Is this going to be... Uh, will, will this do you think, do you think this will protect us from another fall, big fall down like of the magnitude we've already seen? Is there I think the problem a... is, yeah, I think the problem is that it takes a while for um, uh, these stimuluses to work. Um, and we'll go back and talk about what the Fed did uh, in a moment. But um, because of that lag, uh, I think that most of these stimuluses will actually hit financial markets and... Uh, and, the, and beginning to move into the real economy next quarter than this quarter. So I think this is a terrible quarter. I think we'll see, like I said, uh, the biggest slump in GDP since GDP started being calculated at the end of uh, the, the Second World War. I think we'll see that fall in GDP this quarter, okay? Um, so I don't think that what's been done can save the stock market or the real economy this quarter. But I think, I think uh, particularly the expansion of the size of the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve um, in the, um, the st US stimulus package 
there was additional reserves, treasury reserves given to the Federal Reserve of 454 billion US dollars. Now that's a lot of money to start with, but that allows the Federal Reserve to create 10 times as much credit as that, 4.5 trillion dollars to lend to the corporate sector. Uh, now, it will t after, after through the uh, if that will only start to work its way through the U.S. capital market and real economy through this quarter. But next quarter, it will actually hit, and the result of that increase of 4.5 trillion U.S. dollars almost doubles the size of the um, Federal Reserve balance sheet. Um, at the beginning of the GFC, there was 800 billion US dollars in the Fed balance sheet. At the end of this expansion of the Fed balance sheet, there will be 10 trillion dollars, about 12 times as much in the Fed balance sheet. And that's really what's going to hit the market in the second half of this year. Mm. So I think, I think uh, the, these actions taken by the Australian government and taken by the, by the US government will have a dramatic effect on stock markets in the real economy, but we're going to have to wait another quarter for the cavalry to arrive, Peter. But next quarter, the effect of those, both of those stimuluses will be very strong. Okay, so June quarter, don't expect much. September quarter, start getting happy. Yeah. Michael Knox, as always, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Peter.